Indeed, I send you greetings from your brothers and sisters in Christ from Brooklyn, New York, from Resurrection Sheepshead Bay. Uh, Resurrection Sheepshead Bay is a year and a half old church plant that we started about November 2015 that grew out of three years of Hurricane Sandy recovery ministry in South Brooklyn. And as part of the Resurrection Brooklyn Church family of churches, we are five uh, churches in various neighborhoods spread out in Brooklyn. And uh, it's great to be here. It's great to worship with you and give Matt a chance to go down and experience uh, our church down in, in Brooklyn. And we just thank you for your hospitality and your welcome uh, and giving us a chance to, to get out, breathe a little different air, see a few more trees, a little more grass uh, than, than we are used to and, uh, and have a good time worshiping with you this morning. Uh, we're going to look at Acts chapter 9 uh, this morning, Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 19, uh, and uh, that's the passage we're going to look at this morning. I guess it's going to be printed maybe up there or somewhere or something like that, but at any rate, uh, listen to God's word to us, and it's given to us because he loves us. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, but rise and enter the city. And you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple of Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him, so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and bring in kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight And be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized. And taking food, he was strengthened. And for some days he was with the disciples at Damascus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we pray you bless the reading and now the preaching of your word. As we come before you this morning, we ask that our eyes would be opened, uh, that we would see what you would have to say to us. Maybe it's correction, maybe it's encouragement, uh, maybe it's assurance, uh, whatever the case may be. uh, Would you open our ears and our hearts to understand you? Because ultimately, you is what we need. We need to be united to the life of your risen, resurrected son. And so would you speak to us by your spirit? And in his name we pray. Amen.
So it didn't take long uh, coming into Connecticut to answer the question, was uh, the thrill-seeking culture of America alive and well in Connecticut? Because on our way in Friday evening, uh, we saw something up in the sky and we're like, what in the world is that? And it turned out to be a hang glider. I haven't seen a hang, somebody hang gliding in a while. I assume they probably hopped off one of the nearby mountains, I guess, and was you know, slowly drifting back to the earth. And uh, yesterday we went on a hike uh, up to, was it Hubelin Tower? Is that how you say it? Yeah, okay, good. Hubelin Tower, and on the way up, uh, we saw people tying ropes around trees and choosing to jump off the side of a cliff, you know, and uh, rappel down the side of it. It's like, okay, uh, that, that's going. And, and while we were on that hike, we also kept hearing this pop, 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 pop. And my son was like, what is that noise? What is that sound? And I was like, well, I'm pretty sure down there is a shooting range. And he was like, you mean people are shooting guns? I was like, yeah. And he was like, that is thrilling. Why do we not move here? You know, like, why do we not live in this place? And then, you know, quite possibly dad may not have been lost, but not maybe not necessarily on well-traveled trails. And we had the thrill of picking ticks off each other all day yesterday, too. Uh, this summer, we're going to try to uh, engage upon the thrill of, of sailing, uh, but as my wife says, only without a really good radio, and for good reason, because I know nothing about sailing, and also because the ocean is a dangerous place. The ocean is dangerous. You can't tame the ocean. You know, that hang glider, you can't really tame the wind. That's what makes it exciting. You can't tame the mountains. They are dangerous places. You know, the fact that gravity never fails to pull your body at 9.8 meters per second until you go splat on the ground is why people like to jump out of perfectly good airplanes. So it's the thrill of the danger, of the life-threatening experience that so many of us, well, maybe a few of us at least, enjoy these thrill-seeking opportunities. One thing you have to realize, though, is that the one true and living God is also dangerous. The true and living God is also dangerous. And if you're going to have a relationship with him, you have to understand that God is more like a wild, untamable, dangerous lion than your pet kitty cat at home that rests on your lap. But all too often, we don't want a wild, untamed, dangerous God. We want a domesticated God, like our kitty cats. We want a domesticated God because a domesticated God does not offend our sensibilities. A domesticated God is just a projection of what uh, we already believe and doesn't contradict our most cherished beliefs. A domesticated God already just affirms what we already desire, what we already want, what we already love. But friends, God is not your domesticated pet. He's a dangerous beast. He is the mighty ocean. He is the immovable mountain. He is the untamable wind. And that's the God that Saul meets on the road to Damascus. Saul was this deeply religious, violent zealot for the Jewish faith. And those aren't my words, that's his own words that he used to describe himself when he wrote to the Philippians in chapter 3, verses 5 to 6. He said, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. 
This is the guy who stood by and held the coats of those who stoned Stephen, the first Christian martyr, to death. He made sure that they had full range of motion to throw those rocks at Stephen until he was dead. This was the man who, it just says in a previous chapter, was going about ravaging the church. And as our uh, scripture today starts, but Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus. So that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now you've got to understand something before we move forward. A caution, if you will. Saul is not a cartoon villain here. Saul is not wearing the black hat. He doesn't have the long twirly mustache that he's sitting there twirling while he devises all his schemes of chaos and anarchy and to overthrow, uh, you know, to, to triumph evil over good and all that kind of stuff. He's not the black hat. Saul was deeply, I mean deeply convinced that what he was doing was actually the right thing. Saul was deeply convinced that what he was doing was the good thing and for the glory of God, that what he did actually honored God and pleased God. You have to understand, he was a Pharisee. And we often think when we hear that word Pharisee in the New Testament, like, oh yeah, that's the bad guys. But you have to understand, those were the popular dudes in the first century. They were the ones everybody looked up to. They were the ones that everybody respected and sort of could relate to and found a lot more accessible than the other religious authorities and figures. This is who Paul was. Paul was the kind of guy that observed all the offices of prayer every single day. Paul was the kind of guy that knew his scriptures backwards and forwards. And he thought that by opposing Christianity, he was actually loving God. Because he thought Jesus was a false prophet. And Christians, therefore, were a danger to the moral fabric of society. And therefore, they must be eradicated and wiped off the face of the earth. And as the religious authorities' henchmen, Saul truly believed that Christianity was evil and morally corrupt. But on the road to Damascus, Saul discovers that everything he thought was true, he was dead wrong. Everything that he gave his life for was absolutely incorrect. It says there in verses 4 to 5, And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Saul meets the living, resurrected, vindicated Jesus. And his world is absolutely rocked to the core. I mean, first of all, Jesus is not dead. Second of all, he's not only fighting, he's not not only not loving God by what he's doing, he's actually fighting against God. That the very men and women that he's arresting and dragging off to prison to most likely die is the same as if he's doing it to Jesus, same as if doing it to God himself. That he learns in one moment that if he's actually going to honor and serve and love God, he actually has to love this Jesus whom he rejects and Jesus' church and to whom which he has given his life to stamp out and erase. In a flash of a moment, Saul, who thought he saw truth... Saul, who thought he saw the world rightly, 
finds himself blind. Blinded by the light of Christ. In reality, to prove that he was in fact spiritually blind. The one who was dragging all folks to their death now has to be led by the hand like a child. His world is turned upside down when he meets the resurrected Jesus. Everything he gave his life for was now in question. It says he didn't eat or drink for three days. Do you know that feeling? When something that you thought, everything you thought was so true, something you were so convinced this was reality, only to come to find that the opposite was true. You probably have felt that way too. You didn't want to eat or drink either. You probably just wanted to die like Saul did. So let me ask you this. Whether you're here today and you're a Christian, or you're here today and you're not sure if you're a Christian, or you're here today and you're sure you're not a Christian, let me ask you this. Can your God do this kind of thing to you? Can your God do this kind of thing to you? Can your God challenge your most cherished convictions? Can your God offend you? Can he challenge you? Can he contradict you? Can he unsettle you? Can your God tell you what you thought was ugly is actually beautiful? Because a dangerous God, a wild, untamed God, he will do these things to you. Sorry to tell you, but that's who God is. A domesticated God will only affirm the choices that you've already made for yourself. And let's just be honest. That God, that God is just me. That God is just yourself. And what is it that we often do when something we thought we were so right about turns out to be wrong? What's one of the things we do? We stick our fingers in our ears and we close our eyes and we say, la, 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 I'm not listening. Because we would rather be blind to the truth than to have to admit we were wrong. Because we don't like to be wrong. When you're wrong, you feel weak. You feel exposed. You feel embarrassed. You feel vulnerable. We feel shaken. We don't like that feeling. But you've got to understand this. The God that Saul meets on the road to Damascus, he is a dangerous God. For sure. He can't be tamed, which means neither can his grace and mercy be tamed. Only a dangerous God can change you. For you see, Saul didn't just make a few mistakes here and there that God just needed to tidy up a little bit. Saul's self-deception was so deeply ingrained in his heart. Saul's sins were life pattern sins, not just little one-off sins. All sins were rooted in self-righteousness and self-deception. I mean, he persecuted people for a living. You may say, yeah, you know what? You don't really get to come back from that when that was your choices. Well, it's true. You can't come back from that. But don't limit what God can do. Don't limit what a dangerous, untamed God can do with his mercy, his grace, his transforming forgiveness. Listen to what happens there in verse 10 again. Now, there was a disciple of Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, here I am, Lord. 
The Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. God tells Ananias to go and meet this Saul of Tarsus. And Ananias basically says, what? You want me to do what? Don't you know who this guy is? He's here to kill us. And you want me to go meet with him? Are you crazy? You see, Ananias didn't realize that God's grace was this dangerous. But the great thing about Ananias is that Ananias' God is not a domesticated projection of his own self. He's open to the fact that maybe, maybe God is up to something beyond what Ananias hopes or desires would happen to Saul. So he goes. He obeys. And it says there that when he comes upon Saul, what does he say? Brother Saul. This man who previously was trying to kill him, he greets with brother Saul. And he lays hands on Saul, not to abuse Saul, although he probably could, since Saul is still blind and is completely wrecked at this point and unsure of what's going on. He lays hands on Saul, not to abuse him, but to embrace him. To bring him in. And it says that Saul receives the Holy Spirit. Yes, God wants to dwell even with Saul of Tarsus. And Saul with him. And he's baptized with Christ. He dies to sin. His sins are washed away. He is raised to new resurrection life in Christ. And he is given and welcomed with the family name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is what a dangerous God can do. Now, you may be sitting there today and you say, you know what? I fully accept that God is dangerous. I know he's dangerous. I know he's a God of dangerous grace and mercy. But you know what? He kind of, you know, he does it begrudgingly. He forgives us because he has to. It's his duty. He sort of made this promise and he's kind of beholden to it. But he pretty much just puts up with me. He knows I'm a sinner. He knows I'm broken. He knows I'm weak. And he just sort of puts up with me all the time. Friends, do you realize from this passage that couldn't be any further from the truth? God doesn't just put up with you. God embraces you. He pursues you even when you hate him and hate his church. And we all do at some point. If I don't wrap up this sermon, you may start hating it real soon. We all do it. We all often think we're right in hating him and hating his church at some point or the other. But you have to see this dangerous God of love and embrace. He delights in bringing you back home to dwell with him, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Even if it means he has to lay you low for a time. So that the scales can drop from your eyes and so that you can see who this dangerous God truly is and not just a projection of your own self and what you want. A God of dangerous love and dangerous embrace. embrace. So let me ask you this as we close. 
how would your life how would your life be different if you truly believed if you truly trusted in a god of this kind of dangerous love towards you how would your life be different if you believed your sins the really awful ones the ones that you have cherished and held on to for so many years were truly washed away by God and God takes up residence in you by his holy spirit i think your life would be changed i think how you relate to your spouse would change how you relate to your kids how you relate to your friends how you relate to your neighbors how you relate to your enemies would change Even if your enemies are your spouse and your kids and your neighbors. Even if your enemy is yourself. I think if you are truly set free to live with a dangerous God like this. Of dangerous love. Of dangerous embrace of us as sinners. Then our lives truly would change. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your pursuit of us. We thank you that you never give up on us, that you are a wild, untamable lion. You are definitely not safe, but you are good and you are the king. And you pursue us in love to bring us back home to you, to dwell with you, Father, Son and Holy Spirit. And so we know that this morning and when we go forth from this place, proclaiming this kind of dangerous love of God to our friends and our neighbors and showing mercy and forgiveness and love where it is needed. And pray you'd empower us to do so by the Holy Spirit. And in your name we do pray. Amen.